It is my privilege to be back with you again. For those of you who don't know me, and that's almost everybody, uh, my name is Bernie Vandewald, and I'm the, what am I? I'm the District Superintendent of the Canadian Midwest District of the Christian Missionary Alliance in Canada. And for that reason, I don't carry a business card. Uh, it's, it would just be way too long. But it's a great pleasure to be with you, back with you again, uh, and a great chance, a uh, great opportunity for me to, to share uh, from the Word of God with you. You know, it's interesting to me that the wealthiest generation probably ever, mine, when it reminisces, we, we look back with great fondness to our childhood, and we, we almost regale in the simplicity of our lives. And I, of course, uh, am no different. Uh, I often remember the simplicity of my own upbringing. Simpler times, as a kid in part, meant uh, simpler and fewer toys. One ball, one bat, and maybe a couple of gloves would have been all that a dozen or so of us would have needed to have a great afternoon of fun together. Or sticks and leaves, sticks and leaves chosen carefully and dropped strategically into the curbside gutter after a heavy rain would uh, provide for us hours of fun. Consider, for example, though, these common household items. At least they were common household items uh, back in my day. You don't see them much anymore. But it causes me to remember when my mom, just like any other mom in the neighborhood, uh, would show little discretion regarding which of your garments she would hang on the line for the whole world to see. And all of God's victims of those mothers said, Amen. I got a few amens. Okay. But two clothespins and a threadbare towel in this kid's hands back in the day, those items, they were magical. Because strategically and securely fashioned in place, these items would whisk me and my friends from an obscure neighborhood on the Canadian prairies to stately Wayne Manor in Gotham City. We transformed instantly from two run-of-the-mill kids into the dynamic duo Batman and Robin. Now sadly, for no other reason than he was a year older and a little bit bigger, Grant always got to be Batman, and I was always relegated to the dubious role of the boy wonder. And yes, my therapist and I are talking about this. But for hours, we would make our way through the neighborhood, traveling from yard to yard, capes pinned to our backs, rescuing all sorts of good citizens from villains, both real and, well, mostly imagined. You know, to a naive six-year-old kid, one of the coolest things about Batman, you know, the real Batman, the Adam West Batman, was all of his cool stuff. <laughs> Hello, the Batmobile, coolest car ever, and his seemingly unrelenting supply of fantastic gadgets. He seemed to have the right gizmo 
to solve any problem, and he always seemed to have it close at hand. Huh? Remember the uh, shark-repellent bat spray that he just happened to keep in the bat copter? No? Well, he did. But it does make me wonder, what if, what if one day Batman didn't foresee a problem? that would come his way, and therefore couldn't find or couldn't even fashion the right gadget or the right gizmo? Or what if? What if the project was so big that no mere gadget, no matter how fantastic it might be, could resolve it? What if no matter how much he planned, no matter how much he prepared, that his best laid plans and his fantastic devices just didn't measure up? What if? What if? You know, if recent world history, the last couple of years, teaches us anything, it has reminded us of this that as the immortal poet Robert Burns, the Scots poet, would say, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. That is, in spite of our plans, in spite of our planning, in spite of our gadgets, in spite of our gizmos, in spite of our programs, in spite of our processes, in spite of our organizational charts, in spite of our best intentions, in spite of our best efforts, life will deal us something far different and likely far more than we ever saw coming. I know these days it's hard to believe that something like that could happen, but I'm told it can. You know, such was the experience of Moses. You know, after losing his cool in Egypt and committing murder, and having to flee for his life, finally, Moses seemed to have found some peace and quiet. He had married, he'd settled down, he'd had a few kids. He'd landed a good job in his father-in-law's sizable corporation. He was eating well. He was getting plenty of exercise. He was enjoying the fresh air. And he was probably sporting a pretty good tan. And then, but then, some mysterious voice from a burning bush comes along and compels him to give up this life, this comfortable life, and in fact, not only to do that, but to engage in about the riskiest thing imaginable in that day. If you have a Bible with you or you have your phone with you, pop open an app and let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus, second book of the Bible, pretty easy to find, right after Genesis, chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. Here's the story. 
When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing in milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Let me ask you today two questions. Today or in recent days, do you find yourself in this story? Or do you think that one day you might, or that one day you have. Let me carry that on. Do you identify with Moses? Or maybe, do you identify with the Israelites? Perhaps you identify with the Israelites. And like them, you feel like you've been under an unbearable and constant weight a weight that threatens to destroy you. You struggle each day, day in and day out, under a massive and unbearable burden and, unseeming, and, and seemingly getting nowhere while you do. Or perhaps you identify with Moses. People. and Maybe even God seem to call on you for more than you think you have to give. Been there? Are you there? If you're feeling like Israel, remember, God knows where you've been. He knows where you 
are. In spite of what might seem to be his silence, and in spite of what that silence might be saying to you, maybe even saying to you about God, or saying to you about yourself, God sees you. God hears you. He sees your condition. He hears your cries. He hears and sees because contrary to what you might be thinking, what you might be tempted to think, what you might even feel some days, what you might feel a lot of days, God is not far. He's near. You've not been abandoned or forgotten by God. Like Israel, you are significant to God. Why? Because you're His. His people maybe even in spite of yourselves. And so, your troubles, they're real, but they have meaning. They have significance. Your suffering, it's real, but it has meaning and has significance. Your joys, they're real, and they have meaning and significance. Your hopes, they're real, and they have meaning, and they have significance. Even your tears, they're real, but they have meaning, and they have significance. But God doesn't just see and hear. He doesn't just empathize, as great as that might be. God responds. God saves and God delivers. Of course, as He did for the Israelites, He saves from. He will save you from those people, those situations around you that, that hold you captive, that, that tie you down. And being saved from a situation that is inexpressibly gruesome, of course, is a fantastic thing. But freedom, true freedom in any of its senses, is never just freedom from. It's also freedom to. And so for the enslaved people of Israel, it was to be a deliverance from where they were to what He promised. What He promised to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promised land. It wasn't just a different place. It wasn't just a land. It wasn't just a place to call their own. It wasn't just a place that they could live. But this promised land was a good land. 
And this promised land was a spacious land. It was good. It was rich. It was abundant. It was, as the phrase goes, flowing in milk and honey. But it was also a spacious place. It was big enough for six nations, the story tells us. And so it would be more than able to to meet their needs and to fit them. The property brothers uh, might describe it this way. uh, The land was well appointed and roomy. It was, uh, as a people, their dream house. And so the God who saves is also the God who delivers. He doesn't just save from, though that would be great. He also delivers to. And the two is far, far, far better than merely the from. It's everything that you need it to be and more. But maybe, maybe just maybe today you're here and you're identifying with Moses. And if you do, I get it. These past days, these past weeks, these past months, these past years have called from each of us and from all of us for far more than any of us ever expected. Indeed, more often than we'd care to admit, it seemed to to call from us more than we felt that we had to give. The good news Well, God is going to deliver Moses just as He delivered the Israelites. But Moses, I think understandably, asks a question. Who am I, God? Who am I? You know, for years... For decades, Moses had been living in designed obscurity. But, back in the day, Moses was a pretty big deal. He was, after all, as the movie says, a prince of Egypt. And in those days, Egypt was a pretty big deal. So maybe Moses thought that this voice had heard of him. At least about who he was and maybe about what he had done. But maybe not that murder thing. Or maybe he had heard about that. And that's exactly what this voice was looking for. And maybe Moses was happy about that. But it seems more likely he wasn't. But still, Moses plays it kind of cool and asks, for you oldies fans out there, like Chris Christopherson asked, but for very different reasons, 
Why me, Lord? Why me, Lord? I want you to check the story carefully when you have a chance later. God never answers Moses' question. Not directly, anyway. And it's in this void that I think we begin to hear God's answer. It's not about you. It's not about the man. I mean, Moses' question makes a lot of sense. Why are you coming to me? What do I have that you need or that at least you could use? Makes sense. Great question. But that's not the only question, and maybe not even the first question that I would ask. I'm pretty sure that early on, even before I asked the who question, I would ask the how question. And just how do you propose that I do that? That is, what's your plan? But Moses, strangely enough to me anyway, never asks this question. This, I think, obvious question. But again, the void speaks volumes. It's not about a plan. At least as Moses, or I, or maybe even we, would have imagined it. It's not about you, God says to Moses. It's about me. You know, some sayings are so familiar that we can hear them out of context and immediately imagine the situation. Take this one, made even more famous by its use in the sitcom Seinfeld. Here's the line. It's not you. It's me. It's not you. It's me. I mean, immediately when I say that, probably 80% or more of us know exactly what's going on. And just as likely, we probably know that what they're really saying is, it's not me, it's you. Uh, but they don't want to say that. But in all that's about to unfold, the voice from the bush is saying this to Moses. It's not you, it's me. But this time, that voice is hoping for the exact opposite effect than that phrase would normally be used. It's hoping to bring him near, to bring him near rather than to cast him away. It's not you, it's me. I am. I am that I am. So God, if you'll allow me this theological indulgence, is the man. 
God is the answer to Moses' who question. Right? Rather than relying on Moses, who he is, on his resume and his abilities, God reminds Moses who God is and what he can do. And that's what God says Moses is supposed to go and tell the people. But as is the case for all preachers and teachers, church leaders, this message from God for the, per, for the people needs to be heard and owned by the speaker. In this case, Moses and me first. So basically, God says this, Moses, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember those stories? Remember what I did with them and for them? Remember the miracles? That's me. I'm that guy. I am. But God's response just isn't about the who. God's response is also about the how. He has a plan, but He is the plan. What's the plan? I will be with you. God is not only the who, God is also the how. God is enough to then fill in the blank. No matter the context, no matter the situation, no matter the challenge, God is able. He's more than able. Unlike Batman, He doesn't need gadgets. He doesn't need gizmos. He doesn't need either who or how. The one who created the world out of nothing. The one who divides seas. The one who raises people from the dead. The worker of miracles beyond imagination. He is enough. He. He is the how. He. He is the plan. He, He is up to any challenge. He, He is enough. He is. Well, the more things change, the more things stay the same. In the face of our challenges, we're just as likely to ask the question of God, who and how? And maybe, and maybe even likely, you've been tempted to assume when you've asked that question that the who is you. And the how, you wish you knew. Because you have no idea. In fact, you might be convinced that whatever it is, it simply can't be done. But God reminds us 
as He reminded Moses, as He reminds you, I am Himself. God remains, if you will, the man. And God remains, if you will, the plan. There is no other. There is no plan apart from who He is. There doesn't need to be. And even if there were, it would pale in comparison. And this all leads us to a pretty important question. So what? So what? Or maybe if we're a little more gracious, at least now what? Today, or maybe this week, something looms before you. Perhaps something looms over you. And you might be pretty confident that you can't do it. You might be pretty confident that it can't even be done. But today, God is speaking to you just as He spoke to Moses. I am. I will be with you. And since He is, and since He is, who knows the kinds of things that He has in mind for you? As we, as I close my time here anyway, just invite you to take a moment in contemplation, in prayer, and think about that thing that's either looming over you or looming before you. And just in prayer, cry out to God. And invite him to be I am. Let's just take a moment. Amen.